activist gospel. The activist gospel. We have this and one more, and then we'll move on to something else. I hope, uh, I hope that these um, have been helpful to us as we seek to clarify what the gospel is and keep a good perspective on that and uh, to help us um, identify and point out what the gospel is not. And so uh, hopefully this is one more that will help us in this. Um, I want to share this, uh, this story with you to get us started. It says, A friend of mine once told me about a little Kentucky church concerned about a city council proposal that would allow local businesses to sell alcohol. For years, the county had been dry. Because the church members had witnessed the damage caused by alcohol abuse, they wanted to protect their neighbors and families from temptation, so they decided to act. For a period of several months, the little church became the headquarters of the anti-alcohol movement. Church members knocked on doors and asked people to vote against the new proposal. They put out signs, organized volunteers, took up offerings, and sent out mailers. On the day of the crucial vote, the church members gathered in their sanctuary around the radio, breathlessly awaiting the results of all their efforts. After a couple of hours, the news came in. The church had won. The proposal to allow the sale of alcohol in the county had been defeated. The church members cheered. Whoops and hollers echoed throughout the sanctuary. Hugs were exchanged and... and Beverages were passed around, non-alcoholic, of course. One of the deacons turned to my friend and said, This is the best day our church has ever had. When my friend told me that the deacon called it the best day, I wondered, Really? Regardless of one's views on alcohol consumption, does it not seem sad that a church would view the passing of legislation has the greatest event in its history. So let's talk about that. What is wrong with that picture? Maybe it's obvious. Let's state the obvious. What's wrong with that picture? Okay, so, sure. So hopefully the greatest day in the history of the church is when they see Men and women coming to salvation in Christ, absolutely. Any other thoughts on that? That pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> absolutely. Um, and this kind of identifies one element of what we're calling the activist gospel. Now, no church, whether conservative or liberal or liturgical or contemporary, big or small, no church is immune to some elements of the activist gospel. Um, so we can see this in a lot of different ways. As I bring up just that one issue, a political issue, what are some things that you assume uh, that the church can be involved in? And they may be very good things, but that they can become the main thing and therefore are no longer the right thing to be pursuing. What are some main things that could be pursued and become the heart of the church that we could easily be swayed into pursuing as opposed to the gospel itself? What do you think? Brad? Okay. Absolutely. Okay, so the homosexual agenda, I could preach every sermon about marriage between one man and one woman and how the homosexuals are out to destroy our country, right? Or, um, and again, that's, some of that is not, uh, is not wrong or bad or uh, unbiblical, but if that becomes the main thing, then it's no longer the gospel. Uh, the issue of abortion. Christians ought to feel very strongly about that, and we do. We believe very strongly in the issue of life. Uh, but if the protection of the unborn becomes our main emphasis, then we have lost, once again, the gospel. Yes. Okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
Sure. Sure, absolutely. Outreach, evangelism, there's a great sermon on the table back there, a recording of a sermon. It's called The Golden Calf of Evangelism. Um, that it can very easily become something that it's not intended to be. That everything the church is supposed to be is about evangelism. Well, that's not necessarily so, is it? What about, uh, what about discipling the saints? What about the, um, the communion of the saints around the Lord's Supper? What about the ordinance of baptism? All of these sorts of things, worship of Christ, all of these are part of what the church is. So if we isolate, uh, we tend to push the gospel, the very gospel that we are seeking to use in outreach and evangelism, away, and that becomes the main thing. Good. Any other ideas? Those are pretty... Sure, that we would uh, that we would uh, focus. Um, well, let me say it this way: there are those who would um, who would conclude that in order for a church to uh, to grow, that the activity we need to partake in is finding out what the people around you in your neighborhood want to see in a church service. So. Um, you're inviting, uh, you want to ask all the goats what they want to do at the gathering of the sheep. Um, and uh, that doesn't really work. Um, but that becomes, a, uh, that becomes an effort uh, to simply get people in the door. That's the activity we're focused on. So we throw out the heart of the gospel and the reality that it will be a stumbling block and we can't make it palatable enough and maintain its core elements that those who are truly outside of Christ will want nothing to do with it. And so we become activists trying to get people in the door thinking we, have, uh, we, we can offer them something if we just get them there. So we're all prone to this on some level, in some issues, some things we hold uh, more dear to ourselves than others perhaps, but across the board there are issues that any of us could look at and become so keyed in on that that becomes the main issue and we push aside the gospel. So we're going to look at several versions of the activist gospel tonight. The first one are the culture warriors. And perhaps you've heard this term before because it's used often in uh, media as they talk about uh, some of um, who they've uh, referred to as the, uh, the evangelical right or the Christian coalition or these sorts. These are the culture warriors. Now, there is, no doubt, a battle of worldviews in our culture, um, and some have likened it to, uh, they've used these words, they don't s simply talk about a difference of worldview, but they talk about a war being waged, a war being waged between my ideas and yours, and our culture continues to move, obviously, towards uh, secularization, and as a result, the war is heightened. Um, so, uh, some of the common things we hear in the, uh, I don't use rhetoric in necessarily a bad way, but in the, the speech, the, the, um, the common things we hear from those engaged in the culture wars. Uh, well, prayer is no longer a part of uh, what goes on in schools. Uh, so, we took prayer out of schools. The Ten Commandments aren't posted in our courthouses and our jails anymore. Um, wh what else? What are some other things we hear along those lines? Okay, we want to keep in God we trust on our money and uh, one nation under God and our Pledge of Allegiance. Okay, so what are all of these assuming? That everybody believes it. That's one part of it, sure, absolutely. What else? We're assuming that if we maintain all of these things, they're going to do what? what? They're going to cause people to believe in the Lord. <laughs> sure. When Jesus says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, I don't think He intended 
if your money says in God we trust, that people will fall to their knees and repent of their sins and believe in the gospel. Um, the problem with the culture warrior mindset is that it confuses the church and culture. The church has specific things the church is to do, and we have to understand that the church is functioning within a culture. Scott, go ahead. Sure. <laughs> perfect. I, I was, uh, was going to address that. So, that is a perfect example, and I'll say it again for the recording, that a local business sign says, in God we trust, and underneath it it says, open seven days a week. <laughs> what a contradiction, right? Um, so, we want to cry out about the Ten Commandments being posted in our courthouses, uh, but we want, to be, uh, we want to be able to participate in all the commerce and trade and sporting events and everything that we can on the Lord's Day. So we want, to, uh, we, we want to take out the Fourth Commandment altogether, but we still want it posted in our courtrooms. So there's a contradiction. Uh, and you can look through uh, all Ten Commandments and find those contradictions most likely. Um, there, there's a... Uh, there was uh, recently an evangelical who was on, um, on the Glenn Beck show. Now, what's, why am I bringing him up? What's significant about Glenn Beck? He's a Mormon. Okay, good. Um, so, when talking about the difference between Glenn Beck's Mormonism and evangelical theology, the issue came up in the midst of their discussion, and the evangelical popped up immediately and said, listen, we can argue about theology later after we save the country. Wow. Um, this is the culture warrior mindset in a nutshell. It's simply this, that if we do certain things in a certain way, and it involves talking about God or injecting God, infusing God into institutions and, and, uh, and places, um, then we're going to fix this broken world around us. We're going to fix our country. Uh, what's, what's wrong theologically with that sort of idea? Okay, so, okay, key point, heart transformation. How do cultures change? By starting every meeting in every institution with prayer? The hearts of the people are still cold to the Lord, are wicked. It comes through transformed hearts. Cultures transform when the hearts of the people in those cultures transform. That's how institutions and ideas are changed. As worldviews are formed around the gospel and not around cultural wars that are being fought. So this idea of we can argue about theology later after we save the country is a complete contradiction. No, it's our theology that determines how we go about living our lives that are eventually going to or not going to transform the culture that we live in. There's a huge difference. So we believe then that we are in a battle in which the righteous oppose the unrighteous, and the inevitable result is that there is hostility toward non-Christians who differ with us on political positions. Because all of a sudden Christianity has become about a specific political line that we run down instead of about the gospel that influences how we do those things. Recognizing that, um, is it possible let me ask it this way. Uh, because we're in the, we're in the South, um, 
It just seems preposterous, perhaps. Is it possible that a a born-again, genuine believer in Christ could vote for a Democrat? Is that possible? We have a hard time answering this, and I think in one way I'm pointing out one of our biases in the culture war. Yes. Now, I'll give you, they're being inconsistent, uh, but, and we're not going to open a political discussion here, um, I think we can look on both sides of the aisle and say we can be very inconsistent voting for various different types of people. And so we can't simply look at someone and decide who they vote for in public office and determine, well, they can't be a Christian because they voted for so-and-so. That is the mentality of culture warriors. And so you get pastors on Sunday mornings preaching sermons, essentially telling those in the congregation who to vote for. Um, That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. We have to be very careful in applying our biases uh, in those realms. Now, of course, I would want to sit down with a Christian who voted for a candidate who was pro-choice and these sorts of things and talk to them about that. What is this saying about your understanding of how the gospel implications work out in day-to-day life? But, nevertheless, that doesn't make or break one's Christian witness. So the culture war really moves us in the opposite direction from the cross because we're no longer admitting we're broken, needy sinners that look to Christ for our transformation, and instead we are looking at political activism and laws and regulations in order to change the world around us. So the gospel is not working fast enough, so we're going to turn to making sure that laws and rules and regulations are in place in order to do the very thing that the gospel will do if we are preaching the heart of it. So that is the culture warrior. The next one is the errand runners. Uh, So this is in reaction to much of the rhetoric of the conservative culture warriors Uh, there is the other side of activism. And this is very popular these days amongst uh, younger evangelicals. Uh, So instead of fighting the wars of abortion and same-sex marriage, they promote uh, environmentalism, relief for the poor, uh, social justice. um, And so we want to tax everyone so the government has more money to care for the poor. Um, So the goal in that is that we're going to make the world a better place. We're going to fight global warming. We're going to put shoes on shoeless children in Africa. And we are going to give oatmeal to the food kitchen downtown. So um, are any of these bad things in and of themselves? No. No, none of them are. But again, what's the problem? Where's the gospel? Where is the gospel at the heart of this? The problem with those who take on the mentality of the errand runners lose their prophetic voice and become just another interest group. They become another category of environmentalists or another category of uh, social um, changers. Others set the agenda. We just run the errands for the world. That's where the name comes from. So the agenda is set, global warming, big problem, and so we're going to run the errands of rallying our evangelical friends to make them care about global warming. All the while, we don't ever stop to ask the question, what does the gospel have to do with all of this? Um, So to be fair, the errand runners understand that injustice is a problem that needs to be challenged and dealt with, but the undergirding assumption that unites the culture warriors and the errand runners is that politics and policy are where the real change occurs. So, while they may be on different ends of the spectrum politically, 
their ideas of how change happens is one and the same. Politics and policy. We've removed the gospel, the gospel transforming hearts of people, thus changing culture is replaced with politics and policies that are in place in order to bring about change. So whether you're a right-wing activist or a left-wing activist, you're united by your belief about politics, and that's the primary way of changing the world. That is not the heart of the gospel. Any, uh, any thoughts about either of those two before we push on? All right, third category is the educators. This group may be in either one of the first two, but they may go about their ends in a very, uh, maybe a little bit different way. Um, and their assumption is that the main problem in society is ignorance. And so what is the solution to ignorance? Education. We just need to know more about certain things so we're no longer ignorant. I remember uh, very clearly uh, last February when Felicia and I were in Haiti, um, I was having a conversation with the chief of police downtown Port-au-Prince, Haiti, right across the street from the Capitol building. And I asked him uh, if he was a Christian, and he told me he was, just like every other person I talked to in Haiti. Um, And I said, so... Uh, tell me about the life, the lifestyle of the people here. And he went on to tell me about um, how uh, many of them, uh, in his eyes, were, were lazy. Uh, none of them really wanted to, to work. They uh, have built a culture of depending on foreign aid, and uh, so they have essentially received everything in life and never had to work for anything. <laughs> Back to the first. (laughs) And so as he continued to talk about that, I said, so what do you think the fix is? How is it that we get from a place, an entire nation that is dependent on foreign aid and nobody wants to work? And in fact, I can vouch for that. When we got there, several people told us they quit their jobs because they knew after the earthquake that a bunch of aid would be coming in, so they had no need to work anymore. Um, So... Uh, I said, what do you think the fix is? And he told me, well, uh, the people are ignorant. They need to be educated. And I said, well, you're, you're a Christian. What else, what else do you think could be the fix? And he told me, well, everyone is a Christian, um, so we just need to be able to educate them. So obviously some ignorance, and maybe he needed some education about the gospel, um, But at the end of the day, we see this is a very prevalent mindset. It's very prevalent in our culture. The problem isn't that our hearts are wicked. The problem is that we're just uninformed. We're just uninformed. So crime and poverty and unemployment and all the other woes of our culture are solved if we can simply improve upon the education of the people. Well, Christians have been on the front lines of increasing educational opportunities. Um, This was one of the major strides of the Reformation. Uh, Certainly, we value education. We as a church value education. Um, But do we value education to the extent that it replaces the gospel? It's a question we have to ask ourselves. Now, how do we understand God and know more of the gospel? Well, obviously, we have to study and learn and have the tools in order to do that. So, during the days of the Reformation, literacy was promoted. Uh, Immigrants are being helped in er learning English uh, in America today by churches. That's a great thing. Christians are right to see education as a major part of building a culture for the common good. It's not a bad thing or a wrong thing like any of the other things we've mentioned. But education should never replace the gospel. You're seeing the pattern here. Our biggest problem is not our ignorance. Our biggest problem is that we are rebelling against God, and we have wicked and sinful hearts that want nothing to do with Him. That's the big problem. 
And so the education that needs to happen is education about our sin against God, our breaking of His law, and our need for a Savior, and the redemption that is offered when we repent of our sins and believe on Christ. So education simply makes us smarter sinners, but it doesn't actually address our hearts. That's a problem. Any thoughts about that? Any, uh, let's see, who's been through education training, like in the public system? I know Bethany has, and Raven's there now. Um, Do they, uh, in teaching about education, is this kind of the idea? If we can just be better educators and educate, we're going to have a better society. Is that kind of the predominant? Yeah. Okay. You got a semester under your belt. <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> the public university is not going to have a class on heart change. Sure. We're training behaviors, maybe. We want to uh, we want to see a little behavioral modification, and if you add to that a little bit of intellect, maybe just maybe they'll turn out all right. Uh, never addressing the heart and wondering why billions and billions of dollars being added every year to the educational system just isn't working because we're not addressing hearts. Hearts are the issue. So here's the deal about the activist gospel is that everyone wants Jesus to be on their team, right? Uh, We all want Jesus on our team, so um, we can see... uh, a culture warrior uphold the Second Amendment right to own their guns and cite Jesus as their example. Um, and in fact, there was, I'm not kidding, a recent uh, effort at a Bible translation called the Conservative Project. And it rejects and rewrites any verses that may bolster any views that may be deemed politically liberal. Now, it seems hilarious to me that they would call it uh, the conservative project, and yet they're not holding to the inspiration and infallibility of the Scriptures. <laughs> it's a complete um, contradiction. Now, uh, that received a little bit of scorn in the evangelical community, and I think the whole project was canned. Um, So we can see that uh, the culture warriors want Jesus on their side so they can keep their guns the Aaron Runners uh, co-op Jesus too. Jesus turns out to be a peace-loving hippie, and uh, that's why he has um, feathered hair and product uh, with um, uh, a dress that walks around all over and speaks really soft to everybody and wants to carry lambs and hold children in his lap all day. Um, this is the Jesus of the Aaron Runners. He's soft, he's effeminate, and uh, he really doesn't have a backbone at the end of the day. Um, the educators want Jesus on their team by turning to him as the great teacher, but really he just has a lot of good things to teach us. He's not much of a savior. He's simply the great educator in the sky. And so all we need to do is teach people what Jesus taught us, and let's just love one another and try to get along. You put a culture warrior and an errand runner and an educator all in the same room, you're going to have a battle, and Jesus is not going to be anywhere to be found. (laughs) Why? Because once again, we've lost the heart of the matter, and that is the gospel. Now, of course, our efforts to make Jesus, uh, to to pick him first for our team, um, is not new. This is something that we saw even in Jesus' time. There were groups that initially would have loved to claim him, right? But eventually they despised him because they didn't see that he was fulfilling their agenda. We see that very much in our culture. So, if we were in, uh, we can see that just in America. Let Let me give you an example. Uh, Something very popular to talk about in the South is the issue of um, uh, heterosexual marriage and uh, abstinence before marriage. 
that we would talk about a sexual ethic, and that involves we reserve sex for marriage, that we, uh, we don't see homosexuals getting married. Um, these sorts of things are popular ideas, Christian or not, across Southern culture. It's a predominant view in the South. But when you start to talk about um, social issues that Christians ought to be involved in, like caring for the poor and the downtrodden, uh, feeding the hungry and clothing those who are without, uh, these sorts of things, what are the responses that we might expect to hear? Not as popular, right? Why? So what, what, are, what are some of the statements that might be made around something like that? Okay, sure. And that is in the Bible. If a man does not work, he doesn't eat. But we're assuming a lot there all of a sudden, right off the bat, right? That the man we see on the side of the road asking for money, uh, he just needs to get a job. That's, that's, the, that's the issue. He needs to work. Well, maybe so. But I am not taking five minutes to figure out all the circumstances in his life. Um. In fact, I'll tell you, I've spent a lot of time with the homeless population in Savannah, and a lot of those guys, um, they had great jobs. (laughs) And a lot of things happened to a lot of them. Now, not all of them, uh, but you're talking about people who are wrapped in addictions and everything else. So um, there are some issues there that need to be addressed, certainly. But at the heart of it all, the gospel calls us to care for those people one way or another. That's not necessarily giving them money. Uh, but ignoring them is not what Jesus calls us to. So we see one Christian element is very popular in our culture, while the other one not so much. Now let's take both of those issues and bring them up to New York City. Um, What happens with both of them? They flip-flop, right? Our sexual ethics are no longer uh, um, popular, and they're probably laughed at in a place like New York City Uh, by and large, uh, but our ideas about social justice are very popular and very much a part of the mainstream. So we could draw maybe a a Venn diagram, you know, the circles that overlap and look at the center and say probably if some of these things are overlapping in the center, we can see that's where the gospel is. That there are going to be things that Christians are called to that certain Uh, political ideas are very excited about and certain other ones aren't and vice versa. Certain cultures promote while other ones don't. This is why it's very important that we keep the gospel central. What does the gospel do and what are the implications of it? What are we called to? And in being called to those things to do uh, what the scriptures tell us to, now we're along the lines of Um, of what Jesus intended, not our separate camps where we want Jesus on our team to promote our cause. Now, again, these specific causes are not bad things. They're good things most of the time, but they're not the main thing. Um, So how do we identify the activist gospel? Well, the story of the activist gospel is that the kingdom is advanced through the efforts of Christians to build a just society. We are the answer to our prayers for a better world. We will change the world. So we're all going to join hands and sing Save the World. Uh, You guys know that song? Probably in between the two generations that are here tonight. (laughs) Say, heal the world, make it a better place for you and for me, the entire human race. We know that song. We are the world. That's what it's called. Okay, now you know what I'm talking about. All right. (laughs) We are the world. We really blew it. Is that the next line? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's the activist gospel. We just need to join hands and sing Kumbaya, and it's all going to be settled as long as you're on board with my political agenda. The announcement of this is the gospel's power is demonstrated through political, social, and cultural transformation brought about by Christians who would just get off their couch and get involved. 
And the community of those who are activists looks like this. The church finds its greatest unity around political causes or social projects. That's a problem. It's a big problem. So there are various reasons. What are the reasons why this is so attractive? I want to pitch that to you first, and then we'll talk about what I have here. Why does this seem attractive? Why would this be attractive to evangelicals? Any of these forms, the culture warriors, the errand runners, excuse me, or the educators. Sure. Sure. It's very attractive to highlight elements of what we are most passionate about. So the activist gospel is uh, is sort of an outlet for the things that we are uh, we are uh, most wanting to pursue. So if my issue is, uh, if the thing that gets me most charged up is abortion, then I put every bit of my effort into the anti-abortion um, uh, movement, which, again, is not bad. That's a good thing to be involved in. Uh, but when it becomes the main thing, it's no longer a gospel thing. Um, so it is, it, is, uh, it is attractive because it sort of it channels those things which we are most passionate about. Absolutely. What else? Melissa? Okay, good. It's certain things that I can look at and say, I did this, I did this, I did this, and I can go down the list and check off the boxes of what I was involved in in order to, um, to feel validated in my, um, my profession of faith. What else? Earl? Go ahead. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a means of stimulation of the flesh. And so <coughs> we can see it in one of two ways. One is that we attack those things that we are most uh, tempted by, perhaps. Um, that if my, uh, if my temptation is, um, well, like the, uh, the church we heard about at the beginning. If my temptation is uh, that I feel like every time I see an alcoholic beverage, I'm going to drink it and get drunk. Well, I'm going to make every effort I have at attacking that issue. Um, the other side of it is that we're tempted in other ways, perhaps, and we want to uh, put all of our effort, all of our attention into attacking something else so we can sort of move over, but we get really excited about that. So we have, uh, we're still uh, overly maybe stimulated by something that just doesn't happen to be that other, that other thing that we were dealing with. Is that the lines where you were? Sure, to get amped up about, yeah. Sure. Right. Absolutely. So the, uh, the message of first importance, Christ and Him crucified, in some ways gets boring after a while. And so we want our flesh stimulated by something else that becomes our pet issue. Brad will. For you and for me and the entire human race. Yeah. Uh, you know, so they're motivated 
Right. Sure. Absolutely. Great, great point. So, um, we all, as Christians, we, um, we understand the call to be um, seeking to see transformation in the world around us. That's part of our mission statement. We want to see transformed lives. It's, the issue is how we go about that. Are we seeking to address the heart, or are we seeking to um, change practices and institutions by um, politics and policies? There's a huge difference. And so um, what can happen is that a people of God um, begin to understand the gospel as, um, as these sorts of things, that it's about doing certain types of works. And if the gospel being preached week in and week out is based upon works, then the natural outlet for those works is to do some kind of, um, some kind of uh, deed that hopefully involves making a change. Well, that change that you want to make is all good and well, but again, what is it motivated by? Am I seeking to earn God's favor when I'm doing this, or am I doing it because I've been transformed by the gospel and I see it to be a worthy pursuit to make much of Christ in? There's a huge difference there. Sure, we, we can get very, very involved in activist causes and in the end we can see they really have no effect if we've never gotten to the heart of the issue, address the gospel with those whoever we're trying to, whoever the group is that we're trying to um, encounter and see transformed. Right. Right. Sure. Sure. So again, like the uh, the education portion of what we talked about, um, all the efforts outside of the gospel are seeking to change people's behavior. Well, a person's behavior doesn't change until their heart changes because their behavior is a direct result of what goes on in their heart. And so uh, you can't have one without the other, and the one has to come first. Temporarily, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They're going to fall back eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I went back. Yeah, that's a good point. There, is a, there, there can be a temporary uh, change of behavior. And if you've parented at all, you see it with your kids. Uh, I've got an unregenerate two-and-a-half-year-old. She'll change her behavior when my voice gets firm and my hand goes back. Um, but tomorrow, she's going to be doing the same things. Uh, her heart's not changed. Um, or she knows certain things that she shouldn't do and she doesn't do them, but um, she looks at it and she looks at me and sees if I'm watching. Um, so, uh, absolutely. And uh, as Scott said, our education is a perfect example. A little classroom management in the education world uh, is a great example of that. Um, one of the things so attractive about the activist gospel is that it seems to bring immediate results, and that's part of that, is if I can get you to uh, agree with me on some level about something and uh, maybe make some adjustments, some modifications, it looks as though uh, something's changing here. And that's immediate results, and we are a culture of instant gratification. We want everything to change overnight. And so... Uh, Let's face it, sometimes making disciples is very tiresome. 
That is a difficult, arduous, long process, and sometimes after two or three or four years, you realize, I've been discipling a goat all along. Um, that's frustrating. That's hard. That is um, discouraging in a lot of ways, but it's all in the sovereign plan of God. So let's not turn away from that which he has called us to, discipling the nations, and instead turn to policing the nations with politics and policies. And, of course, the activist gospel makes us popular with people we want to impress. Uh, Culture warriors know that their positions will be unpopular with certain people in the world, but anyone who's ever done any kind of public speaking knows that if you know your audience, there are certain things you can say to, uh, the term is to pump up your base. So, Uh, There are certain things I could probably say in here right now, and if I pumped it hard enough that we could all be on our feet cheering together. Uh, The problem is, if that thing that I'm saying is not, again, the gospel, uh, then I might win the popularity contest for the day, and we might rally together and say, yeah, and shake our fists at those we're disagreeing with, uh, but what have we accomplished? Um, So we we need to understand that, and it's very tempting to go that route because it feeds the flesh. And uh, if we're honest, we've all been guilty in some regard. So, the big deal with the activist gospel, and this is maybe a, a little bit different from some of the other ones we looked at, is that the gospel itself is being confused with the effects of the gospel. So, the activist gospel puts the cart before the horse, We're worried about doing these things in order to bring about a certain change that will only happen in the hearts that are changed. So the importance is that we focus on seeing transformed lives, therefore culture is transformed through those people. If we reverse the order, then we'll never get to the other one. It's like trying to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. It doesn't work. You'll never get there. Um, So we cannot confuse the gospel with the effects of the gospel. Um, We're about out of time. Any thoughts uh, or questions or further comments? Brad. It is very sad. It's sad because we have lost the core central message that we believe in Christ and Him crucified and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and nothing else. Nothing else saves anybody apart from the gospel proclaimed. And how is that done? Well, Paul gives a good, uh, lengthy dissertation on this in Romans 10. How will they hear if no one goes, if no one preaches, if no one proclaims? Well, if we're too busy proclaiming um, our activist positions, then, um, then we will never, ever see the transformation we are striving for. So that's a very unfortunate um, result of um, some sectors of American evangelicalism. Any other thoughts? And I will, uh, I will simply say um, that this is not to say that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics and government. We should be. It's even a part of our confession um, that talks about Christians being in the role of civil magistrates. But when the one replaces the other, we've got a big problem on our hands. All right, well, let's, uh, let's pray, and we will be done. Lord, thank you again for tonight. We're so grateful for the opportunity to gather to talk about what the gospel is and what's helping us to see that is to understand what it's not.
Lord, we're grateful um, that you have revealed to us clearly in your word um, that which is the gospel, that we not get it confused with these other um, variations. And I pray, God, that you help all of us uh, to, be very, um, to be very clear about the message of Christ and him crucified that it not be mingled with preference, that it not be mingled with um, uh, pet issues that any of us have, whether or not they are good things, doesn't really matter in the end if they replace the gospel. I pray, God, that you help, uh, you help us all to be faithful to that central message. I pray, God, that you keep me faithful to preach and proclaim uh, from your word and not um, uh, exegeting... Um, the culture from the pulpit and the needs that are, are uh, uh, the needs of change that are evident, but rather um, that we are exegeting the text and making much of Christ. I pray for each of us in that, that you help us to be wise as we apply the gospel and the implications of it in culture and as we interact with other people, as we engage in the, uh, the political system, as we engage in commerce and business and all these things, that the gospel is evident in our lives and in our work uh, and in our interaction, uh, but that it is not replaced. Lord, uh, woe to us if the gospel is replaced. Keep us faithful, God. Keep us uh, focused. Keep us moving forward to see transformed lives, being sending and being sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.